What's up, podcast listeners? Before we get started with today's episode, I just wanted to give a quick shout out to my DPS share campaign listener of the week. That is at Contrary Bill. Shouts out to Contrary Bill for sharing last week's episode on Twitter. If you would like to get a shout out before the show starts each week, head on to Twitter, that hellscape of Twitter. Yes, venture onto Twitter if you dare at your own risk. I take no responsibility for the actions that may be incurred upon you for doing so. Get onto Twitter, share this episode, hashtag it with dead pundits, and I will check those hashtags. And each week I will select one person to give a shout out to. And this week it's Contrary Bill. You're a fucking hero, Contrary Bill. Thank you so much for spreading the message about DPS. The podcast sphere is oversaturated these days, and there are a large number of people who would benefit greatly from the theoretical, historical, and strategic insights offered by my guests on a weekly basis, but they just don't know that DPS exists. So if you don't have the money to become a patron right now, the least you can do is to share this episode and hashtag it with dead pundits. If you do have some expendable income, I encourage you, as always, to head to patreon.com slash dead pundits and become a subscriber. We cannot do this without the generosity of our listeners. Thanks so much for supporting DPS. And I've got one hell of an episode for you guys today. You're really going to like this one. Enjoy. Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. You'll never have the sacred stone. <laughs> oh, this you crazy mother... Welcome, everybody, to today's episode of Dead Pundit Society. I am your host, as always, Adam Proctor. We are entering our second week of national, global quarantine. Uh, most of us ought to be quarantined, that is. Of course, we all saw the images of people on the beaches in Florida and other people who are not respecting various distancing measures. There are reporters who are not respecting our grandfather, Bernie Sanders, per public and personal space. He was uh, chided a couple of Capitol Hill reporters for invading that five-foot bubble that the CDC recommended and got a lot of hell from it for from reporters. But anyway, I digress. Joining us today on the show is a man who is probably as nutty as I am at this point, being stuck indoors for two whole weeks. But we have a lot to talk about. Uh, I mean, there's always a lot to talk about, but particularly in our times that we're living in today, uh, we've got things to talk about relating to the virus. We have things related to the pandemic, to the quarantine, to Trump and his nightmarish, ghoulish response that seems to change by the hour. We have certainly have things to talk about in the United Kingdom, where they're using Malthusian efforts to kill off large swaths of the population in order to retain a profit-driven economy. So today we're going to try to focus in our concerns. There's so much to say. There's so much to think about, but we're going to go deep into finance. We're going to talk about the financial response and the uh, fiscal and monetary related responses to coronavirus crisis. And additionally, we're going to talk about something that many of us have not thought about in some weeks, which now feels like years, which is the prospects of a potential Bernie Sanders presidency. My guest today has written a, an incredibly valuable piece on this that has been largely, I'm not going to say ignored, but overlooked and, you know, understandably so, given the demands of the coronavirus pandemic. But we're going to be talking about that piece today and much more. Joining us on the program is returning guest, Mike McCarthy. How you doing, Mike? Good, good. Thanks for having me, Adam. So that was an off-the-cuff impromptu introduction. 
You know, I feel like everything is a little off the cuff, a little informal these days. Kind of brings you back down to earth when you're stuck indoors trying to stay alive. Uh, so for those of you out there who are not familiar with Mike, he is now an associate professor. Just got tenure. Congratulations on that. Associate professor of sociology at Marquette University. He is, His first book is called Dismantling Solidarity, Capitalist Politics and American Pensions Since the New Deal. Uh, you were on the show about a year ago, year and a half ago to talk about that book. So people should go back into the catalog and check that out if you're interested in pensions, uh, the labor movement, finance, all of that nerdy, dusty stuff that we talk about on DPS. Let's get started here. You're currently writing a book on finance. Is that correct? Yeah. Give yeah. us a little elevator, a little elevator speech on that book and, and how you're sort of conceptualizing, like explaining finance to a largely like lay audience. It has to be a nightmare. It's, it's basically going to be a, a kind of primer on democratizing finance and thinking about finance politically. Usually when finance is discussed, not just by the left, but in general, it's, it's discussed in pretty kind of narrow economic terms. But what I'm trying to do with this, with this book is really think about finance and how it relates to political power and how finance itself can be harnessed for popular ends. It's all about democratizing finance and thinking about it politically. Yeah, no doubt. We've been talking about that extensively on DPS. I had you on the show probably about a year ago. That was the last time you were on to talk about that. Your second appearance on DPS to talk about the possibilities of democratizing finance. But we're going to talk about the flip side, the nightmarish side of finance and what those uh, possibilities may hold for a future socialist movement in the United States. Of course, when you wrote this piece, Bernie's prospects looked a lot better. Following mm -hmm. Super Tuesday, uh, the betrayal by Elizabeth Warren, I would say. I'm not sure if you can even call that a betrayal. Many, some of us saw it coming. Some of us were pretty sure it was coming. Whatever happened, um, Bernie got knifed by many would-be progressive allies, or so we thought some months ago. Of course, the mainstream you know, piled up against him in every way possible. But that's another story. It's looking less likely that Bernie is going to be the nominee. But you never know. Anything is possible. We're in a highly kinetic, malleable situation right now. But let's start off by talking about the reeling markets over the past couple of weeks. Congress has thus far been unable to act. What is your just kind of brief summation of your understanding of what Congress is looking to do right now in response to you know, the, the stock market crash as well as the, the, you know, the rise in unemployment? People are projecting perhaps – up to 20 to 20 percent unemployment for next month's figures. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's we're, we're, we're getting into, I mean, truly uncharted territories with respect to a, a with respect to recession. I mean, the Financial Times released some numbers a couple of days ago in an op ed that showed there are about 37 million jobs in the U.S. that are really vulnerable right now to short term layoffs. The vast majority of those are low wage working class jobs, you know, and things like food, you know, restaurants, bars, you know, retail, education, leisure services, things like that. And Goldman Sachs is projecting that within a week, there could be 225 million people applying for unemployment. So, I mean, we're at the precipice of a severe downturn and it's, um, it's coming pretty quick. And basically what, what Congress is trying to do right now is, is figure out the terms of what looks like it's going to be an almost $2 trillion stimulus package. There's been some fighting between Democrats and Republicans over what that's going to entail. 
earlier versions of it guaranteed uh, sick leave, but they were only guaranteeing sick leave for people that worked for large firms, which is not the majority of workers in the U.S. A number of firms like Walmart, uh, McDonald's, and many others, uh, Amazon had exemptions from some of these measures and other traditional labor protections. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. That's right. So there's the package that they're that they're sort of arguing over right now, which we'll probably see something um, come about in the next few days. is is really over issues like this. It's pretty interesting. Ye- yesterday, the Federal Reserve basically bypassed this whole democratic process, and they they put together their own stimulus package, which is really unprecedented in the U.S. They are doing a number of things. They're buying up huge amounts of financial assets, primarily government debt, so U.S. treasuries. They've already put hundreds of billions of dollars into U.S. treasuries. They're buying up mortgage-backed securities and other kinds of bonds. And they've basically said now that they're going to buy an unlimited amount of U.S. government debt so that they're just essentially going to keep on printing money to buy. The Fed has eased banking rules. Basically, what we're seeing right now is especially small and medium-sized firms have really been heavily in debt even pr- prior to this, uh, prior to the coronavirus. And they're really struggling right now to pay, pay off liabilities. And so there's a, a huge crunch in, in cash flow for firms. Mm-hmm. And, and essentially what the Fed is, is trying to do is make, make it easier for banks to lend to those firms. So they're, they're easing rules. A lot of the rules that were put in place um, after 2008, they're trying to coordinate internationally with other central banks. But what's really fascinating about what the Fed did, I think, is that yesterday it put together a primary market credit facility and a secondary market credit facility, which basically these two different entities are going to directly buy corporate bonds from firms and um, indirectly buy corporate bonds to the secondary market. So basically what the Fed is going to do, it's going to have the capacity to directly give money to firms. Yeah. I mean, let's talk about how unprecedented that is because some people just who sort of see the Fed as an arm of the U.S. government, which it is and it isn't, or they don't see the distinction between the Treasury and the Fed, which we should talk about a little bit. Um, it has tremendous you know, consequences for like the state of class struggle and, and the capacities of the capitalist state and socialists in government. But before we get deep into the weeds, talk to us a little bit about what the Fed has traditionally done in the face of crisis. And when I say traditionally, we're only going back to 2008 because what they did in 2008, 2009 was in many senses also unprecedented. So, you know, we could go back to the origination of the Fed, you know, various kind of, you know, machinations and the whatever stagflation crisis. But, you know, our sort of modern view of the Fed only goes back to 2008, 2009. And yet what has been done in the past week is like vastly unprecedented, even compared to that, like even that like short, like 12 year history. Um, So what had the Fed been doing in order to put out fires prior to to this week? Uh, I mean, prior to this week, basically what what it was trying to do was purchase financial assets through financial markets to support those financial markets. So when the stock market went into a drastic decline, the Fed's primary response was to purchase up huge amounts of assets to try to bolster the prices. That's kind of what it has been doing with quantitative easing. And another way that the Fed has traditionally kind of intervened is to try to make it easier for banks themselves to lend through controlling the interest rates. 
But what's, I mean, I think what's kind of unique in the situation now is the Fed's capacity or its new capacity to directly pump money into firms themselves. And that to me is, is important because, I mean, the, the purpose of having, you know, democratic processes where you decide the conditions under which certain firms are going to get money from the government is basically being bypassed. That to me is incredibly worrying. If we did have a stimulus package, I would, I would want firms that are getting, that are getting bailed out to sort of not be able to fire their workers. Think about it. If you just give firms X amount of money mm-hmm. and they already have workers that aren't working because either they're sick or they can't come to work because of uh, the lockdown, what's their incentive of paying those workers? There's none whatsoever. None. So There's no conditions. So let's l- let me jump in here because, you know, there are, there are a lot of people who may listen to the way that you're describing the operations of the Fed and just giving corporations like billions and billions of dollars. They might think that's well, wh- how, how is this different from the norm? So it might be worthwhile just very quickly. To, I know this is like we're talking about a lot today. We're doing we're doing a lot of things, but it might be worthwhile to very quickly talk about the role of the Fed. I mean, the Fed, the Federal Reserve, is essentially the banker of the banks. Is that correct? I mean, in a in a sort of very quick and dirty sort of way, so that so that now the, that the, that the Fed is bypassing the banks entirely, where they usually just keep the banks liquid and you know do various things to maintain interest rates. That's its sort of mandate to – well, allegedly it's its mandate to control inflation. That's that's a matter of debate. But they are now bypassing the major banking, the major financial institutions and pumping liquidity and, and doing other things directly into firms, which is something that as you rightly mentioned, like the Fed, we have no oversight. We have no accountability over the Fed. Right. I mean, the the president can sort of uh, suggest and they oftentimes are able to appoint the chair and they've always been able to appoint the chair. But that's the only form of oversight. And so what you're suggesting is that there is a complete there's a shadow entity that that American the American public, that democracy has no control over, no input, no oversight over, no real meaningful accountability over that is just pumping money into our corporations without any conditions and the workers are just sort of eating shit in the process. I mean, that's, is, is that, a, is that accurate? Is that the sort of vulgar, you know, podcast host way of breaking this down? Yeah, abs- I mean, absolutely. The concern for me is it's precisely what you said that the federal reserve now has capacity to essentially pump money into corporations and it doesn't need to do so under democratically decided upon conditions. Yeah. So, I mean, that, that to me is, is, a, is a huge worry. And it sort of, it opens up the possibility that policymakers could say, well, you know, the Fed has this covered. Or, you know, we're going to back away from the issue of, of firms because the Fed has set up these facilities. So, I mean, this to me is, yeah, it's a, it's a huge democratic concern. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's terrifying. It's something to keep our eye on. But before we get too far off the rails here. Um, I wanted to kind of just kind of comment a little bit on what's been done and what's been discussed right now. Any other kind of threads that you've been following regarding the response to the financial crisis right now? Just maybe, you know, in addition to, to jumping in with whatever you feel suitable here for that open-ended question, maybe a more specific question would be, you know, there've been a, there's been a lot of debate as to how to characterize this crisis. And I have expressed some concern via you know social media and my social media networks with previous guests of the show and friends and colleagues and comrades, I've expressed concern that at least early on, 
the kind of the, the serious, like sophisticated thinkers. I almost called them pundits. That's a that's unnecessary. Uh, that's an unnecessary insult. But the serious thinkers on the left were thinking through this in terms of like a financial crisis. So they were looking at unemployment figures. They were looking at other like like Wall Street oriented data points and comparing them to you know the fire last time, right, two thousand eight, two thousand nine, or even going back further to the Great Depression, uh, twenty nine. And, and I had some concerns that these kind of parallels were limited because essentially, as I put it, you're looking at kind of like data points on charts and graphs and then extrapolating from the context and then comparing it to what were kind of more organically kind of finance, finance related crises. I mean, of course, all crises have political roots, of course, <laughs> absolutely without being said. What do you make of that kind of criticism? It sounded like you had some – we chat a little bit. It sounded like you had some similar concerns in terms of how people are characterizing this crisis because this is a – I mean it's terrible. It's awful. People are going to suffer. But it's also temporary in a way that seems hard for us to wrap our heads around right now. So how do you characterize this crisis in the broad swath of crises? I mean I think I think what's unique about this is that the proximate cause is without a doubt the coronavirus the pandemic. The, the proximate cause is that people are are going to have to stay home, that they're not going to they're not spending their money in places that they used to spend their money. Those restaurants, those bars, the real retail stores, you know, leisure tourism places where those 37 million working class people in low wage jobs work are not getting the business that they that they got because of this. And those people are in immediate risk of losing their jobs. And many of, you know, many hundreds of thousands of people already have. And so for me, it's the, the proximate cause is basically that there's a there's a rapid sort of constriction of economic activity going on, which is going to lead sort of people to, lo- to be out of work. Now, that may sort of trigger deeper structural problems that exist in the economy that make the crisis more durable. Mm-hmm. Like We've already we pointed know- to one like corporate debt burdens and, of course, this, this oil war that's going on between Russia and Saudi as the United States proxy, which people aren't talking about. But anyway. I mean the cor- corporate debt is – yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a massive one. There's you know, small and medium-sized firms, not just in the U.S. but around the world, are, are heavily in debt. And, if, and I, sh- I should say kind of tangentially, if you, if you – what's kind of interesting about this crisis is usually during financial crises – People turn to bonds because equities are typically more volatile. And and what we're seeing what we're seeing now is it seems quite strange because U.S. Treasury bonds, which is basically U.S. debt, are getting hit really hard. Those are the the value of those are also declining. And this is this actually tells us something about that corporate debt that I just said talked about. Because if you look around the world, even though even though capitalism is international. Actually, the assets and the value on the books of corporations around the around the world are primarily held in dollars, as are the debts that those corporations have. And so, what what's happening right now is that there's a major sell-off of bonds held in dollars, so that corporations around the world can deal with their liabilities. It's basically a cash grab. 
Yeah. Corporations are are running low on cash. They desperately need to, to, to figure out how to how to get cash in the short term. And the way to do that is you sell bonds. It's like it's you're selling back that debt. It's like smashing the piggy bank in a, in a sense that bonds are seen as you know, that that's that source of value in a sense. That's exactly what's happening. So there's not there's not a run on the dollar. There's just there's just a desperation for cash. Liquidity. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I so, mean, are we are we seeing kind of like a reverse bubble in that sense, though? Because you also see the dy- the dynamics of financialization, and we're really getting into the weeds here. But fuck it, audience can handle it. The dy- the dynamics of financialization are such that like people will be then betting betting that the you know these bonds, the value of these bonds will actually fall, which will perhaps like accelerate the fall. And so you almost see like a reverse bubble because you know. You're not when people bet against the the value of bonds. They're not betting that the U.S. government is going to collapse. Nobody even thinks that right now that the, the you know the dollar, like the sovereignty of the dollar, you know, in the global market is going to collapse. Nobody mm-hmm. really believes that, except for the kind of tinfoil leftists out there. And if you're one of them, cut it out. Uh, <laughs> the U.S. dollar isn't going anywhere anytime soon. Um, unfortunately, well, fortunately and unfortunately, that's another that's a that's a mixed bag, but. People aren't betting against the viability of the long-term or even short-term or medium-term viability of the U.S. dollar. They're just betting that, that these bonds are going to continue falling. So are we seeing an acceleration of this drop because of the, that, that particular nuance of financialization? I mean, that's a good question. And honestly, I don't, have the, I don't have the data or the analysis to say whether that's happening for sure or not. Um, but everything that we know about how financial markets typically act suggests that it probably is. Um, cause that's how, you know, the financial herd t- tends to act, right? When financial markets are really, they're basically unlike, they're the total opposite of markets for, for goods and services, right? Where, where supply and demand are kind of like flipped, like in a, in a and with financial assets, when prices go up, people want to buy them more. And when the prices, price goes down, people want to sell them more. Or they want to get it's 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 kind of the opposite of a of a of you know like a pair of shoes. Yeah. So that's in all likelihood, in theory, that's probably that's that's almost certainly happening. But I guess my point is that I guess going back to your original question, I don't think what we're seeing it the the crisis of that, that's unfolding right now. I don't think it is a result of primarily a result of structural problems in capitalism that are just somehow coming to fruition now. It's it's a result of the, of, of the coronavirus forcing people into their homes, stopping spending at, at, at places that are going to that are going to fire people and that having domino effects uh, around around the world. And those domino effects might certainly trigger uh, um, deeper structural problems. But I don't think what we're seeing right now is the pri- is primarily being driven by those deeper structural problems. Yeah, I think we're talking around uh, a, a pithy um, kind of uh, diss track laid down uh, on this show by Leo Panitch and, and probably many others before him. And I, I don't think it's specific to Leo, but he puts it best. He says, you know, ca- uh, Marxists have predicted 38 of the last four major you know, economic collapses. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> right. Like, you know, people, p- perhaps the, you know, the severity of the structural crisis of capitalism right now is overstated or perhaps relating specifically to your article, which we're going to talk about now, perhaps it's more likely to say that, yes, there's always a horrendous crisis of capitalism in terms of human consequences, in terms of financial consequences, in terms of vulnerabilities in the markets this whole thing could come tumbling down, and yet it doesn't. 
And that's the question. That's the question that Marxists and socialists don't ask enough. Why doesn't it? And it's precisely because of the the capacities that are developed therein, right? So pursuing debt-driven growth, pursuing these very risky sort of financial instruments that can send a you know an economy uh, hurtling through space and time, like we saw in two thousand eight, two thousand nine. The mm-hmm. paradox there is that those things also at the same time produce a lot of capacities for the ruling class, for the capitalist state, for a global financial, you know, monetary superpower like the United States. And these are precisely the things that you're talking about in this piece that has been under-remarked. I hope that this thing gets another trip around the sun after the coronavirus passes. It's called Our First 100 Days Could Be a Nightmare. It's a little bit dated. Maybe you should update it because it doesn't look like uh, our boy Bernie is going to do it. Uh, it's going to be a, another sort of replay of putting a horrendously weak candidate in front of a TV game show host for the general election. But uh, this piece is incredibly important. And you talk about some of the challenges, the pitfalls and the barriers, the traps that that uh, any socialist movement is going to face in government, which is like, man, uh, if there was ever an article that was more on brand for DPS, I'd be hard pressed to find it. So let's let's dive into this. Talk about the context that you wrote this in. We're in a very different context on many levels. But tell us about the kind of urgency, the sense of urgency under which you wrote this piece originally. Well, I mean, I I wrote it when, yeah, it's prospects for a Sanders presidency seemed a whole lot better than they do now. And I was I kind of was I just noticed around me that there was not a lot of critical thought about what Sanders would do once he was in office. Mo- most of what I had seen about sort of the constraints that a Sanders presidency would face was primarily about congressional res- um, constraints, primarily about constraints with respect to building a coalition, which are really important, primarily about constraints about uh, being co-opted while in office. I mean, th- these are all critical and important constraints that a, that a, that a socialist is going to face in office. But but I, I kind of thought that there was uh, an absence of attention to the, the more structural constraints that a Sanders presidency or any democratic socialist presidency would face because of uh, capitalism itself, because of uh, the need to govern in ways that promote capitalist growth. And so that, that was kind of where I kind of came at the piece. And this is you were visited in your sleep by, uh, uh, I don't know, I almost said the ghost of Klaus Offa. He's still alive, isn't he? That doesn't work. Uh, <laughs> so you're in a – damn it. You're, so you're haunted by the kind of concerns and the writings that came out of the 1970s and you know the late 60s and 1970s. You know, and, and there was a – there used to be one time, right, I think at the – what – turned out to be the end of the last upsurge and struggle. Of course, they didn't know, as Adolf Reed Jr. has said on the show a couple of times, uh, in, in the, in the sev- they didn't know that the 70s were going to ultimately be the 70s, right? <laughs> what right. we know is the 70s, right? As the last gasp of the kind of you know progressive, democratic, socialist, labor-driven wave in the United States and globally. They didn't know that the 1970s were the 70s until Reagan, and, and then it was too late. So 
Uh, but there was a tremendous kind of um, explosion of writings about, you know, the contradictions of the welfare state and, and all these other right. types of things. So you're coming from that tradition and, all, and but also expanding upon it, given the kind of the context that that we're in right now with the Bernie wave. Well, that's I mean, I guess this is the um, the fundamental thing I'd say uh, is this. And I guess just to simplify, to make things clear, really clear for your listeners, there's a basic contradiction that every every democratic socialist is going to face in office as they try to govern and within a context of capitalism, which is that if you put in place policies that too drastically undermine businesses' capacity to make profits, they will stop investing. When they stop investing, you will get a recession. When you get a recession, people will lose their jobs. And when people lose their jobs, you're probably going to get voted out of office next 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 election. That's a very basic constraint that is essentially universal in democratic capitalist countries in which uh, socialists are trying to, to gain power. That's been kind of like the insight that Marxist state theorists, that folks coming out of this tradition uh, in the 1970s that you just talked about, really established. But there hasn't there there really hasn't been a whole lot of discussion or exploration of how the conditions under which that process vary. And that's kind of what I was trying to do with this piece. I was kind of I was trying to say that okay, let's think about that process, but let's think about how it's actually quite different in different times depending on how the political economy of capitalism is different. Um, and so you don't actually see um, ruling classes responding the same way in all places. You don't uh, you don't see the, the same kind of processes of disinvestment in all places. Right, right. And so that's kind of what I was trying to trying to do with the piece is to sort of say that financialization and finance capitalism, which is what I think you know one of the core characterizations of America's political economy today, is establishes unique constraints. That are not necessarily true of all capitalisms. That aren't that aren't necessarily going to be true forever, and that to govern properly, uh, you you have to address those unique constraints. Yeah. Pardon the interruption, everybody. I hope that you're enjoying my interview with Mike McCarthy about the financial dimensions of socialist transition, about the coronavirus outbreak, about the Fed's intervention in the economy, and so on. I'm going to make this short and sweet. We absolutely cannot do this without the support of our listeners. This show is brought to you entirely because of the generosity, the support, the solidarity of our listeners, particularly our patrons. So if you enjoy DPS, if you think that this message should get out into the world, if you think that this information is valuable, if you've learned anything at all from this program and you want others to listen in and to get smart and to get active to do something to change this hellscape in which we find ourselves, I encourage you to head to www.patreon.com slash deadpundits and subscribe at a level at which you are comfortable. I know that there are a lot of people out there facing financial strain because of the crisis provoked by coronavirus, by these quarantines and all the rest of it, but many of you are fortunate enough to have stable salaries. Having a podcast or being involved in media right now, unfortunately, is not one of those stable industries. It's not one of those stable professions. So in order to keep this show up and running, in order for us to survive this downturn here at DPS, I'm going to need your support now more than ever. 
So if you have the financial means to do so, I encourage you to head to patreon.com slash deadpundits and become a supporter today. You're going to get access to our B-sides, which are hopefully now going to be coming out on a weekly basis. I had a little bit of a hiatus there because of some poor health. I myself have had a cough and body aches. Who the hell knows what it is? We're all going to be getting something like this in the next few months. It's very scary, but um, I am surviving. But those weekly B-sides will be uh, starting up once again, if not this week, next week. And you'll get access to those as a patron. So head over to patreon.com slash deadpunnets. You know what to do. Thanks, everybody, for your support. Thanks for listening. And enjoy the rest of the interview. And here's why I love this piece and your approach so much. Because uh, for two reasons, two very related reasons. There are a lot of people on the left particularly in the recent history of the left of the past 10 years, you get this argument less so, at least less so in a, in a sort of uh, explicit sort of naked way, right? Like th- this argument that, yes, you're right. There are structural constraints in the capitalist state, which is precisely why the democratic and electoral road to socialism is flawed. And we need to, you know, get over this kind of revisionist, you know, whatever kind of insults they want to throw at the, the sock Dems and all the rest of it that used to like proliferate on Twitter before everybody realized that Bernie was actually the real deal. Anyway, uh, so you, you get that. And I think that we're going to see a return to this once the Bernie wave, at least as it exists right now, uh, collapses. And I don't, you know, it, it, it's going to change. It's going to transform. I don't know what's going to come of it next should he not be successful in this primary race, which looks ever more likely by the day. But it, it will it will transmogrify, if you will, into some other form. And there will be people who were previously in that coalition, previously, you know, believe they were uh, Ber- Berniebers, B- B- believers, Bernie believers, <laughs> I don't know. They'll be jumping off the ship and they'll they'll sort of dust off this criticism and sort of, you know, don it once again, which is to say that, right, that therefore, because of these constraints, we cannot pursue the democratic road to socialism. Electoral politics is a dead end. The Democratic Party is the is the graveyard of social movements and all of these things that are kind of partially right, but also miss the point. By my estimation, that's the first thing. The second thing is people always say, well, you know, when Bernie gets in office, well, they're just going to Air Force is going to have a coup and they're going to drop bombs on the White House, just like happened to Salvador Allende. And, you know, I think there's I think there's there's good reason to be concerned about the the thirst for blood and violence, you know, by members of our ruling class and the deep state. They have a lot of practice overthrowing leaders just like Bernie Sanders in countries abroad over the past 50 to 75 years. But you point to various political economic nuances that suggest that we're going to see other forms of pushback. So sorry for that uh, extended kind of uh, provocation, but I'm teeing you up here. Those are the two the two major debates that run through this piece, and you have really important rebuttals to both of those things. Um, mm-hmm. Let's start with the first one. People who say that you know because of these construct because of these structural constraints, which we'll continue to elaborate over the course of the rest of the interview. That is why this kind of democratic road to socialism is inherently flawed. I think that we're going to see uh, an explosion in people on the left who are going to sort of revert back to that position after 2020. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think that analysis has a really basic flaw, which is that it mistakes risk for certainty that it basically what, what basically is happening is that people say, look, there's there is a there is a good chance that if 
if uh, you know, take a Bernie Sanders or you know any any Democratic Socialist candidate runs, they enter office, they're not going to be able to get congressional support. They're not going to be able to uh, build a ruling coalition. Their ideas are going to get somehow muddled because they have to have an electoral coalition that brings in people of all different stripes. And on top of it, they're going to get hammered in the markets. Um, and therefore, the whole thing is going to fail. They basically, they basically take these constraints on governing and say that because constraints, therefore impossible. But that's, I mean, to, to me, that just is it, basically what you're saying is, yeah, there are risks and therefore I'm not going to do it. But that's what politics is. All politics entail risk. You could, you could, you could say the exact same thing about a strike, you know, or, or Every I don't time, know, a civil war wherein the working class takes up arms against the far better armed ruling class. But yeah, I, I, I mean, you could literally say that about about any form of collective action in yeah. which working class people are trying to win things. Like it's there's scary. there's there's always a higher likelihood that we'll lose. Like including in a strike, including in a in a protest, including in all the other forms of collective action that people engage in. The, the point is setting up tent cities. I mean, you think that such a nonviolent kind of interstitial form of power expression of the ruling class would sort of like be fine. It's all fine and you know dandy until the NYPD rolls construction equipment in there to destroy your your encampment. You know, backed by progressive hero Mike Bloomberg. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. So, so, so on, on the one hand, there's always a likelihood for the disempowered group to lose. On the other hand, you have to make decisions politically within context and you have to make decisions about where to put your efforts within what's, what's, within what's possible at that time. And so to me, the argument just doesn't it just doesn't really make sense when you're thinking about like whether you're going to support a Bernie Sanders presidency or whether you're going to support support democratic socialists trying to win office. I mean, yes, there are certain risks that it entails. Um, but what, what are we doing to try to overcome those risks and what are the other options currently? To me, that's, it's just, it's not really a, a valid argument. I kind of say that to your second question about, you know, a coup or something like that. This is kind of one of the main the main arguments of the piece is that I basically say that you can't really talk about the U.S. in the same way we talk about Allende's Chile in 1970, 71, 72, and 73. That they're they're totally different beasts. In in, in the same way, you can't really talk about the U.S. as if we are France in 1981. The conditions are different. In in Chile, 1970, the main sort of industry was copper. The copper industry was somewhat internationalized. There was a huge stake. American companies had huge stakes in, in the industry. But outside of copper, Chile over the sort of, by 1970, over the past se several decades, had been engaging in import substitute substitution industrialization. So it had it, it had sort of built up its domestic uh, capital. It was, it was, this is really outside. key. I'm sorry to interrupt you here, but let's let's talk about ISI for those who don't study kind of like global value chains and the history of like industrialization and so so on and alternative industrialization in the global south. Very briefly, what was ISI and how did that determine the class structure in, in the way that you write about that was like – that was so determinant in, in the outcome there in Allende's Chile? It's basically a – a developmental model which uses protectionism and trade barriers to help build up domestic firms 
and domestic industry. In Chile, I mean, like I said, the copper industry was the largest and it was quite internationalized. But outside of that, most of Chilean economy was domestic. And so when you when you look at sort of what was going on in Chile in 1970 when Allende took took power, you basically see a see a country that was not hugely internationalized, that had lots of capitalists that had fixed that had assets that were fixed to the country that had sort of a reason to stay and fight. Right. Not a lot of foreign direct investment, things like that. So ISI, you know, in that in that sense was a, a kind of nationalist project in some places. It was a more explicitly socialist and in some places a Marxist approach to like industrialization and modernization to 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 try to get out from under the the grips of like imperialism, be it British, be it Dutch, be it French, be it American, certainly in this kind of like mm-hmm. kind of this critique of neo-colonialism and, and, and actual actually existing colonialism that, that came out of the mid to the to the later uh, 20th century. So you're suggesting that 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 drive, that nationalist project to to rely on like Chilean sources of production and and rejecting other kind of internationalized or or sort of pseudo neo-colonialist forms of um, production and control over the society really determined the class structure in a way that at least suggested very very much so that that the capitalist class in Chile would stay and fight. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I in the in the piece I talk about this idea of uh, the asset paradox, and basically what I what I mean by this is that. When the ruling class has its assets that are fixed in the territory, in things like capital that can't be moved easily, in land, um, sometimes in people, as is the case with slavery, then the ruling class is going to have a much greater incentive to fight against democracy, to fight against attempts to basically tax and take those things. Whereas when the, when the ruling class primarily holds assets that are mobile, that can be easily moved out of the territory. What we find historically when we look at the attempts to install democracies is that it fights less violently against democracy precisely because it has greater capacity to avoid and to outmaneuver popular demands for greater taxation and, and appropriation of those assets. So, I mean, give, to give one example, if you look at um, apartheid in South Africa, the strongest opposition to ending apartheid and to sort of establishing a more democratic government came from the Afrikaner farmers who had assets fixed in the land. Whereas if you look at the, the, the largely Anglo financial interests that, uh, that were situated in the country, they pushed less hardly against uh, democratic transition. Uh, when Mandela came to uh, came to power and tried to sort of uh, redistribute, which he which he did, those financial interests si- uh, simply moved their assets elsewhere, so they uh, so they couldn't tax them. So you, we find this basic dynamic that when ruling classes basically are holding their assets in a fi- fixed to the territory, they're much more likely to be violent and to sort of fight much harder against democratic demands than when they're when they're mobile. The the flip of this though is that when the the ruling class's assets are are primarily mobile, they have greater power within within democracies precisely because of that mobility. 
That mobility gives them greater capacity in politics. It allows them to use the threat of exit, to use the threat of leaving um, to get what what they want in in politics. Mm -hmm. And and that threat in leaving is an expression of the increased capacities that are that's afforded by the mobility of capital. In a sense, I mean, you could look at absolutely up, like the, the the American Civil War was like this dynamic, in, in, in and Mike sort of a almost a, I mean it's a microcosm, it's a massive case study, but in this you know broad swath of the last two hundred years, it's a microcosm of of history. And a lot of people have written that you know sort of northern industrial capital was able to overcome the, the more more quasi feudal but incorporated into global capitalism nonetheless slave system. For this reason, it's just a really fascinating thing that you're, you're pointing to here in terms of how we can expect to to see the pushback by the ruling class shape up based on their political economic kind of configuration. Absolutely. I mean, think about it like this. When Mitterrand came to power in France in 1981 on a platform, you know, in many ways, quite similar to the platform that Allende had, uh, he, he wasn't overthrown with a violent coup. France was a totally different political economy. Capitalist, yes, just like Chile was, but highly internationalized, highly dependent on imports, quite financialized. Uh, before before Mitterrand even entered office, before it's his, uh, he was inaugurated, 10 days before the Paris stock um, exchange had totally closed because of unrelenting capital flights. There were only sellers. There, was no, there were no buyers. And that sort of capital flight, which you don't need a coup, right? You don't you don't need violence. You simply move your, your money elsewhere. Led to led to currency devaluations on the franc. It led to eventually the the socialist government turning towards austerity. So it's so we need to be serious. I guess what I'm saying is we need we need to be serious about how the particular context that we live in, you know, the U.S. 2020 how that lays down unique constraints for for democratic socialists that are not necessarily going to be true in all places at all times. Right, right. And in a sense, you know, at least if you're asking, I don't know, Jean-Paul Sartre or something like that, you know, the Mitterrand faced uh, a face worse than death that he had to sort of wake up every day and look at himself in the mirror, like slowly being transformed from this like democratic socialist firebrand to a neoliberal shill. Right. Responding to the political economic constraints that that, you know, he was under. Look, no, look no further than Syriza and, you know, the the slow but steady. Um, I almost use the word capitulation. Regular listeners know I hate that fucking word. It's so like ideologically loaded. But uh, yeah, I mean, he th- these people become shadows of their former selves, and in that way, the capitalist class has the last laugh. And there's a there. I mean, there are quotes that could fill you know reams and reams of paper and books, you know, in library shelves from bankers and other ruling class apparatchiks, and and they know this, right? They know this. They know mm-hmm. that they'll get the last laugh. They see these socialist firebrands out there in, in their boardrooms and their and their like scotch scented you know uh, gentlemen's clubs or wherever the fuck I imagine these people hanging out. Uh, they they chuckle at the you know at the the pluckiness of these types of folks who have yet to acknowledge and recognize the strength of markets, i.e. you know their violent capacities to squash these movements. So. There, you know, what we've just put forward in the last, you know, especially two minutes would give 
you know, a rational person pause in terms of pursuing this road, <laughs> wouldn't they? But your piece handles that as well, or at least does the best it possibly can under the circumstances. What are some of the what are some of the ways that we should conceptualize our political economic configuration and these capacities that the ruling class have? And and, and what do we what do we do about them? What are some broad strokes? Mm-hmm. Well, well, one thing I would say is that just thinking about that asset paradox I talked about and thinking about the comparison of France and, and Chile, uh, the U.S. is increasingly a financialized economy. And essentially what I mean by that with respect to this discussion is that the ruling class increasingly owns, holds its wealth in mobile assets as opposed to fixed assets. A greater share of the the top 1% in the U.S., are holding their their the, their money in things like equities, uh, mutual funds, bonds. If you, if you look at using uh, the Federal Reserve's distri- distributional financial accounts, if you look at what what sort of the top one percent of wealth holders in the U.S. primarily owned in, in 1989, which was not very long ago, it was primarily private businesses. If you look at it today, it's primarily equities, mutual funds, um, uh, financial assets. So so the first thing we sh- we should just say is that. The U.S. is more characterized by a situation where the ruling class holds mobile assets. Now, to your point, uh, one might say, well, there's nothing we can do about it. While it's certainly true that the, that the ruling class has this capacity, the U.S. state also has unique capacity to maneuver in ways that would, be, uh, that would promote democratic socialist program. Unlike many other countries around the world, the U.S. doesn't have external creditors that are directly telling it what to do. That's the U.S. has actually played that role, right? (laughs) There's no IMF sitting over our shoulder. What's really interesting and unique is that the dollar is basically the reserve currency for the world, which, which basically means that the way trade works is that countries trade in dollars, right? So to go out on the international market and to buy up stuff, you have to have dollars to do that, which means you have to earn dollars. The U.S. is unique in this situation because we don't have to earn dollars to uh, to to buy things abroad. We can, if we want, we can print. We can just simply print dollars. And because assets around the world are held in dollars, because corporate balance sheets are largely in dollars, all that corporate debt that we talked about in the beginning of the episode that firms are trying, the liabilities that they have, all that's in dollars. There's overwhelming interest around the world to maintain the value of the dollar. So, and unlike, interest, and interest uh, figuratively and literally, like as in money interest. People are making money off of this debt. But yeah, anyway. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah, I mean, it's a exactly. crucial component of financialization. It's like very paradoxical that, that this debt like makes a lot of people really fucking rich. Yeah. So, on. Unlike unlike France, which in 1981, after Mitran was was elected, you know, 82, 83, experienced experienced these currency devaluations, the U.S. doesn't have a similar isn't at similar risk, right? Because the the entire global system is dependent on having a robust value in dollars, so we have considerable space to simply. Well, to simply spend, and that's precisely what the Fed is doing. I mean, it all, it all comes full circle, right? Like when, when we talked in the beginning about how the Fed right now, its approach 
to the current crisis because of coronavirus is to spend an unlimited amount. That's their word, unlimited in U.S. Treasury bonds, an unlimited potential amount in putting money into to American corporations. It's not doing that because it has an unlimited bank account. It's it's simply creating money. It's printing money on demand. And so the, the U.S. has a certain space. I'm not saying that space is, I'm not saying it has the capacity um, to do this forever, but it has a certain space to to spend and to print money that other countries don't have before it hits, uh, it starts generating massive, massive amounts of, of inflation. So the, the fact that the dollar is a reserve currency gives us space. And the, fa- the, third, the third thing is that our financial institutions, unlike financial institutions in places like the UK, are heavily dependent on the US market for their own profit. So if you look at, if you look at banks in the UK, if you look at institutional investors in the UK, they're highly internationalized. The city in London most of its income comes from financial services, which it provides to the world. Whereas if, if you look at banks in the U.S., yes, they're internationalized. They're investing all over the world. That's true. But most of their profit actually comes from U.S.-based in investments. Place, uh, banks like Wells Fargo, they're earning a large portion of their profit from domestic investments. So that makes our international institutions somewhat captured by policymakers. It makes it makes them more, in a way, This it sounds kind of counterintuitive given how powerful Wall Street is, but it makes Wall Street somewhat more, it gives policymakers somewhat more capacity to regulate them because they can't simply leave, because they, they are dependent on the U.S. market. So you put all those things together and it, it basically gives democratic socialists a certain capacity. It's no guarantee. But it gives them a certain capacity to operate within a situation of potential capital flight, to operate within a situation of disinvestment, to operate within a situation where the ruling class is trying to get its money out. Of course, you'd want to stop stop most of that as, as best you could with capital controls. But the, the fact that, that policymakers in the U.S. can push banks to lend, can push the Fed to print money, that it would sort of, it would pump into communities and sort of pro worker programs gives it a certain capacity to avoid or to sort of better navigate the pitfalls of a ruling class that holds its assets primarily in mobile financial assets. Right, and in your piece, even still, we're not going to have time to get to these things. People should read it, of course, as always. Read the damn thing. I know that like podcasts take the place of reading, and I, they, they do for me too. I mean, I'm I'm only human. We're all we have obligations and other shit to do in our lives. Uh, plus, I don't know, sometimes watching Netflix is just more fun. So uh, anyway, but try to read it. Try to read the damn piece. It's short. Or you know what? Do what I do. Here's what I do, Mike. You ready for this? Here's a, here's a real like a uh, pro tip for you people out there. Get a text-to-speech app. They're free. And have your phone, your smartphone in your pocket, read these things to you. So you can multitask and make your lunch while, you know, uh, this brilliant piece by Mike McCarthy's being read off to you. That's what I do. So, but you talk about public loans, you talk about, you know, nationalization of banks and industries and making, uh, putting these banks in particular, these financial institutions under public control through various mechanisms. I've had a lot of shows about this, you know, uh, longtime listeners will know, and we're going to continue to talk about this. Your book is all about this. Your upcoming book is all about this. So we don't need to belabor these points. But I think the real central issue here, the real takeaway is that you know what you're talking about here 
is something like, you know, my mentor and, and perennial guest of the show, I should say, Leo Panich has been advocating for quite some time, which this is really like flips third worldism on its head, doesn't it? You know, I mean, the, the, the 20th century, right, was one in where was one in which Marxists and socialists had the belief that that socialism would be sort of, you know, started, you know, um, and be delivered unto the U.S. from abroad externally. It would happen, you know, first of all in Russia. And then when that, you know, kind of sputtered or stalled, they looked at the kind of anti-colonial movement and then various third worldist projects. And those things have all, you know, fallen, they've all run aground on the rocky shores of like financialization and like the newly formed, like, you know, U.S. imperialism. So what you're suggesting here, what you're building off of is really important that if socialism is going to come anywhere, it's got to come in the United States. Like it has to be born and built inside the belly of the beast. Would you agree with that? And just kind of expound on the implications of that as we close here. I probably wouldn't say it as definitively or as strongly, but I, I, I would say that American exceptionalism in the sense that Wall Street was basically built up to batter down the walls around other national political economies for U.S. interest does provide potentially American policymakers greater capacity to actually institute and push through democratic socialist programs. Now, that's not to say that it will certainly, or then that's not to say that experiments with democratic socialism in other parts of the world won't be more successful. It's just to say that part of the U.S.'s strength and dominance as an imperial power provides, in a way, socialist capacity that they don't have elsewhere. That's kind of how I would, I think, put it. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. I mean, come on. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a layabout podcast host. I can make sweeping generalizations. You're a serious scholar. You have to be more nuanced. I agree with that. <laughs> and I mean, it goes without saying, are you saying, oh, Adam, uh, come on, Adam, are you, you're saying you don't care about the struggles going on across the world. Uh, how dare you, sir? You know, it's like, come on, people. Twitter. That was that was my Twitter audience voice, my Twitter people voice. That's that's <laughs> how they sound in my head uh, when I get the tweets and stuff. No, that's not what I'm saying at all. We absolutely need like a multifaceted struggle, and you know, which is why I think the transatlantic left is so important, which is why other struggles going on internationally and particularly in the global south are so important. That's just to say that we're going to need to get our collective boots off the backs of their heads, you know. Um, yeah, no, I mean, you you're making an important point. The, the it's it's uh, oftentimes the the US is just talked about as, you know, uh totally backward, hyper-capitalist, you know, it's almost like this monolith that is impossible for democratic socialists to change. And that to me is a fatalistic, defeatist perspective that actually doesn't recognize the real capacities that democratic socialists in power in the U.S. would have because of the U.S.'s particular political economy and its particular position in the, in, in the global political economy. And that's, that's really important to talk about as socialists in the U.S., right? You, we, sh we should be talking about the unique capacities that, that we would have in office and the ways that we should try to use those capacities to actually change things. Yeah, yeah, spot on. This piece is a really important contribution. And there's no doubt that, you know, we have some challenges ahead. You know, I, you know, hey, Mike, I almost, you know, I just spent the last hour, I almost forgot about the corona crisis and the fact that we're all locked inside our homes right now. 
Uh, doesn't it feel good to talk about anything else? Even like, it, you know, um, it does. It, it feels good to talk about talk to an adult person as well. I've, I've, I've been I've just been with kids. Yeah. Yeah. I have no kids. You do. You've got a couple kids, uh, adorable little little buggers. They are. And uh, thank you so much for giving us your time as a father, you know, uh, parenting in, in a you know, in a, the way that you are right now, stuck at home and uh, shouts out to all the parents out there. Uh, who are doing that as well. Um, you all don't get enough credit and, uh, you know, any justice in the world, we'd have serious forms of relief for all of you. And, um, lots to think about here, lots to chew on with this piece, your book, when is that going to land? I know everything is kind of up in the air, but you're, you're part of this verso series that's, that's burning hot right now. You know, you've got, uh, a number of people, past and future guests of DPS, who are in on that book series. It's a really important one. Um, when's that going to arrive? Um, well, I'm, I should have the manuscript done probably end of the end of the summer. That's that's what I'm that's what I'm aiming, aiming for. So I have, but I have no idea when it's actually going to be published. It's probably for the best. There's going to be a lot of things to update anyway, right? Like the worst case scenario is you, you put something out to press and then you got to immediately put out a second edition with some updates about some wild shit that just happened on the global economy. And we're in for a lot of wild shit, my friend. Yes, we are. Yes, we are. It's only going to get worse. <laughs> yeah, that much can be said. So uh, everybody, you know, check out this article. You might find it soothing, psychologically comforting in a, in a weird, strange sort of way. But it's a really important conversation, and we need to have it. Win, lose, or draw with the Bernie wave. This is going to be the battle of a lifetime. And, um, yeah, these are the stakes. Mike McCarthy, Associate Professor of Sociology at Marquette University. It's always a pleasure. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, Adam. Thanks, Adam.